You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. Uh, those of you who may have uh, heard me before, you know, just for the last five or six years, I've been working with Hellenic Ministries. Before that, for 16 years, my wife and I and three children were in Athens, Greece, where I pastored an international church. We had three congregations with 30-plus nationalities and 30-plus denominational flavors, and uh, so it was quite a uh, colorful mix of people, a very rich uh, ministry that we were just uh, blessed to be a part of for many, many years. Um, And while we were there in Greece, um, 2004, the Olympics came to Athens, and it was quite exciting. Uh, I had a very close friend in the American embassy who was a sports fanatic, he bought all kinds of, I mean, great tickets. He was at the 100-meter the dash, the final, you know, in the stadium. And uh, just a couple days before the Olympics, his wife gave birth a month and a half early to their child, <laughs> and he had all these tickets. And, you know, I told him, well, I could help you out, I'm sure, uh, go to a few events. And he, he gave my wife and I a, a lot of tickets, and we got the chance to see some of these um, um, very expensive events if uh, we would have had to pay for them, but um, it was kind of cool to be there in Athens. Um, over 10,000 athletes from 202 countries competed ag- uh, against each other to win one or more of the 301 gold medals that were up for grabs. So I'm going to begin tonight by asking the question, what does it take to be an Olympic athlete? What does it take? Well, I know that uh, it does depend on the actual event, um, but I tried to distill it down if if there were just a handful of things that were absolutely essential. I came up with three. The first is this. Number one, it takes speed. Two, it takes skill. And we're not just talking just run-of-the-mill skill. We're talking an extraordinary amount of skill. And three, most important of all, it takes endurance. Athletes don't get medals for starting a race. (laughs) Athletes get medals for finishing the race or finishing their performance and finishing well. For most of the core Olympic events, endurance is absolutely critical. Well, throughout the New Testament, you find several athletic metaphors that are applied to the Christian life. Uh, Probably the best-known metaphor is where the Christian life is compared to a long-distance marathon run. Uh, Every single person who puts their trust in Jesus is divinely conscripted uh, and invited into this race that lasts your entire life. Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews said this, we're admonished, let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Now, you look at that verse, and you, first of all, you, you notice it doesn't talk about speed because the Christian life, it's not a sprint. And amazingly, it doesn't talk at all about skill because by the sovereign act of God, you and I are all skilled differently. You have your sets of talents and your abilities um, that you are going to invest in the kingdom, and God has given me uh, uh, skills and abilities that I'll use in my part of the kingdom. So it doesn't talk about skill there. The emphasis is on this virtue of endurance, finishing the race. Now, uh, as a pastor, as a a Bible teacher, and uh, I can drag uh, Stuart in uh, here with this, 
we're running the race, obviously, but our primary job is to come alongside of God's people to encourage them, to train them, to help them so that they can best run the race that God has for them. We are kind of like training coaches. Um, we're, we're there alongside to encourage and to mentor so that one day um, you're going to finish the race well. And let me, let me just, as an aside, I'm going to guarantee this, you're all going to finish the race. One day, if you know Jesus, if you put your faith in Christ, you're going to cross that finish line. Now, Stuart and I, we don't want to see you just like stumble and crawl and eke your way across the finish line. We'd like to see you finish well. And maybe some of you are going to win uh, a medal, um, be recognized for your, your endurance in running the race well. Now, some of you, when I say that, you're thinking to yourself, how can you be so sure that we're all going to finish the race? I mean, let's, let's be realistic. Life is not so uh, comfortable at times and easy. Life can be quite brutal. Life can be filled with all kinds of, of obstacles and unforeseen pitfalls. How do you know for sure that, that we're all going to cross the finish line one day as, as believers? Well, I make that statement, and I make it with full confidence because of what Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He said, God, who began a good work in you, will continue his work until it is completely finished. Amen? Take your pen and circle that word will, because it doesn't say that God might finish it. No, it doesn't say that God hopes to finish it. It, it says God will completely finish what he's begun. God always finishes what he starts. You and I, not so much. <laughs> Go across to, uh, the community, and you'll see all kinds of half-finished half buildings. Uh, you, you rummage through our basement, and you'll see half-finished pieces of art or projects around the house. Um, we don't always finish what we start, but God he always finishes what he starts. So you can rest assured, one day, um, if you know Jesus, regardless of the difficulties you encounter uh, in life this year, next year, it doesn't matter. You're going to cross the finish line. We cross the finish line because of something that's called God's sustaining grace. That's why we're ultimately going to make it. Now, we begin the Christian life, and this is often how we think of grace. We begin the Christian life with God's saving grace. And most of us, after that sort of newness wears off, we sort of set grace aside. But, you know, grace is there from the beginning to the end. Yes, we need God's saving grace to enter into relationship with God, but we finish the race all on account of God's sustaining grace, and that's what I'd like us to consider this evening. Uh, so before we begin, let's bow for a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this body of believers. They've been so committed through the years to be missional in their, their intentions, to be a part of what you're doing all around the world to invest their time and talent and energy uh, and to take time off from work and to take their hard-earned money to see it invested into what's going to last forever in all different parts of the world. And we just praise you for that opportunity that we have here. So, Father, I pray for your blessing in their lives. And as we open your word tonight, open our hearts. And I pray, Father, that you, through your spirit, would minister to each need that's here tonight. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. What exactly is sustaining grace? Sustaining grace is the power to keep on going 
when we feel like giving up. And that's where you can first jot down some notes if you want to try to stay awake until I finish this message. Sustaining grace is the power to keep on going when we feel like giving up. It's the power to do the right thing when we don't particularly care to do the right thing. I think most of us would admit we need that kind of power in our lives to really live a life that's pleasing to God, to live a life that's going to honor God. We need God's power to keep on keeping on. We all need God's sustaining grace. There are three experiences in life where I think um, we, we need to cling to God's sustaining grace. There's probably many, but uh, for the sake of convenience, I've distilled it down to three. Three areas where we can depend and count on God's sustaining grace. The first is this. We can count on God's sustaining grace to keep us uh, upright, to keep us standing when we're tempted. To keep us standing when we're tempted. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. I think it was up on the screen uh, earlier in our worship time. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. The Bible says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. You may not realize it, but the moment you cross into the light, into God's kingdom, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, a battle begins. War is declared. You have crossed out of Satan's domain and you've entered the domain of God's kingdom and Satan doesn't particularly care about that. In fact, Peter says, Satan wants to eat you for lunch. Receive Christ, you become his enemy, Satan's enemy. You become the target of all of his evil forces. Every single day that battle rages and you might think, wow, I know it's somewhere up in the heavenlies, but uh, I don't really feel it in my life. No, it's there. We just don't acknowledge it for what it is. Where is it? It's in our mind, in our soul. That's where the battle rages, in the moral choices that you and I face every single day. Every day we're faced with, are we going to tell the truth here? Or are we going to fudge a little bit and maybe not tell so much of the truth? Are we going to do what's right or are we going to do what's wrong? Are we going to be selfish or are we going to be selfless? Are we going to repay evil for evil? Or are we going to actually depend on, upon the power of the Holy Spirit and repay evil with good? It's those sorts of things that every day um, we may not be conscious and really, you know, defining them at that time, but those sorts of things are going through our soul, through our mind every day. We're in this battle, this moral dilemmas that, that take place within our soul every day, and that battle is called temptation. That's what temptation is, um, when we're debating whether we do what's right or whether we do what's wrong. And the Bible says we're all tempted. Everyone's tempted. You know, you're tempted, I'm tempted. You know, the Pope sitting ex-cathedra in, in the Vatican, he's tempted. There's a little peninsula it's in northern Greece. Um, it's Mount Athos. It's where all the green berets of monks go to be super spiritual. They're tempted. I remember reading a story of a Jesuit monk who took the vow of poverty, and he said he had a problem with, with uh, coveting. I mean, he, he coveted his neighbor's car. He was coveting his neighbor's house. He, he went through life, and all he could think about was possessions and better possessions and something that was bigger and better. And, 
And he went to the monastery and he said, I went from coveting houses to coveting my neighbor's coffee cup. <laughs> you know, he wanted some other monk's coffee cup. You can go wherever you want, but you're not going to escape temptation. We're all tempted this side of eternity. Even Jesus, while living on earth, was tempted. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sinning. There's good news in that verse. The good news is this. If Jesus was tempted in every way that we are, and yet without sinning, he never sinned once, that means it's, it's not a sin to be tempted. We're all tempted, but it's not a sin to be tempted. It's not a, a, a sin when you face that moral dilemma. It's, it's only when you give in and do what's wrong. When you give in to the temptation, that's when it becomes a sin. So as Christians, um, we need to be able to distinguish between I'm being tempted or I'm giving into the temptation. And sometimes Christians, they beat up on themselves and they think, how could that thought have ever come across my mind? You know, how could I even think such a thing? It's not a sin to be tempted. Well, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, we can't always control the thoughts that pop through our mind. We can't always control, um, you know, the things that we encounter in life. It's whether we choose to act in a way that's going to disobey God and dishonor God and go against God's will. Martin Luther used to say, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your, air, in your hair. You know, there's a difference. I thought, well, let's try to bring this from the ethereal to the practical, so I picked one area of temptation, something that is before us everywhere in the culture in the West where we live, and that's sexual temptation. I've had this talk with my kids now, let's see, three times. They've all gone through these sort of years where you have to, you know, have the, the parent talk, and, and you sit down with your, your child and you say to them, look, you know, sex is something that God created to be good. We are sexual be beings, you know? That's how we're wired. Um, we have sexual desires, and he's created chemical things that take place within our body. I mean, who do you think thought up sex in the first place? It was God. And so it's beautiful, and it's wonderful in the right context. You know, we are wired as sexual beings. It's only when we apply those desires and those feelings in the wrong way, the, to the wrong person, that's when they become sin. So let's say you're sitting in a cafe and an attractive person walks by and the thought pops in your mind, wow, it's an attractive person there. Have you sinned? No, I mean, that's a normal reaction. Um, it's only when you go beyond that just initial uh, attraction where you begin dwelling and, and allowing your thoughts to run the gamut of what you could do, that's when it becomes lust. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that we're going to be bombarded by temptation. Um, it's, it's, it comes at us at, at such a breakneck speed. Um, we just have to be prepared to not act on it, to not dwell on it, to not allow ourselves to be captivated by it, to where we allow it to just abide in our hearts and lives. We need to just recognize it for what it is. It's temptation. A few years ago, Larry King was interviewed by Billy Graham. They were talking about uh, all the scandals that Bill Clinton had gone through. He'd gone through like a half a dozen scandals. And, and in the course of conversation, Larry King looked up at Billy Graham and he said, you're 80 years old, you've gone through a lot in life, and there's never been a scandal in your ministry, never been a scandal in your personal life. And he said, how in the world did you manage never to, never to get involved in a scandal? 
And Billy Graham responded by quoting a passage of Scripture. He quoted 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. The temptations that you have are the same ones that all people have, but you can trust God. He will not let you be tempted more than you can stand. When you are tempted, God will also give you the way of escape. Then you'll be able to stand against it. You know what that is? That's God's sustaining grace in action, in all practicality. Occasionally you'll hear Christians, they'll say, look, I faced this uh, situation and I couldn't help myself. I, I just I couldn't help myself. When I hear people say that, I think to myself, they're not being honest. They're not being honest to what God has declared in his word. They're ultimately saying God's lying. You know, because in the midst of temptation, God promises us sustaining grace. God's promising us that there's going to be an escape route so that we don't have to give in to sin. Now, granted, God's sustaining grace, it may not be the easiest route uh, to, to run through. It may not be the most convenient. It may not be the most popular. There may be times that you're going to find yourself in a social situation where you're going to have to just get up and walk out and it may be embarrassing. It may be one of those socially awkward things where you're probably going to get talked about, but that's the escape route. That's the sustaining grace that God's providing for you at the moment. You know, when you choose to do what's right, you're going to be singled out and ridiculed, maybe by your friends, maybe by your own family, by your coworkers, by your neighbors. Certain temptations may require even more drastic action. You know that passage of Scripture where Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you? If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off? And you're like, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Is he, is he some sort of masochist? I mean, is he talking about mutilation? No, he's simply saying, look, there's sometimes you need to take some drastic action to save your entire being um, from what destructive things could happen. So that drastic action may be something along the lines of, you're at work and your boss is, is pressuring you and tempting you to do something, or maybe there's a coworker, and you know what? You've got to quit your job. That's pretty drastic because you need your job. But for the sake of your soul, for the sake of your spiritual health, your well-being of your family, you got to cut it off. That's kind of what I think Jesus is getting at. There may be times your escape route, it may not be so convenient, so popular, so clean, so easy. It may be quite drastic. But that's God's rescue plan. That's God's sustaining grace. Second common experience in life where we can count on God's sustaining grace to keep us going. We can count on God's sustaining grace to keep us going when we're tired. When we're tired. I mean, let's face it. It doesn't matter how much money you've accumulated. It doesn't matter where you live in this world. Life at times can be just outright exhausting. And living for God and living uh, in, a, in a right fashion can only exponentially make it more exhausting, make it more difficult. When we commit ourselves to do the right thing, not the easiest thing, when we commit ourselves to follow after God no matter what, um, it's going to take a great deal of diligence, effort, you know, resolve on our part, you know, focus on our part, and that can be exhausting. It's not for the faint of heart. Sometimes people will say, oh, the Christian life, that's just a crutch. That's just so you can just sort of skate your way through life, you know, uh, in, an, in an easy-peasy way. It's not true. For some of you, you may be the only believer in your family, the only one. Some of you are students. 
and you're sitting there in class and you're thinking, wow, I don't think there's another believer in this class. And you're standing alone against a strong current between your teacher and your fellow students, or maybe between your parents, your siblings, your aunts, your uncles. You're singled out. It's not easy to stand alone for God. It's tough. And sometimes you might just think, you know, to do the right thing, it's just not worth it. It's too tiring, too exhausting. It's exhausting to swim against the current. When everyone else around you is, is saying one thing and doing one thing and, and going one way, uh, when everyone else is doing what's wrong, it's draining to do what's right. And that's where the verse that Paul shared to the Galatians, Galatians 6, 9 comes in. Let us not grow weary in doing what's right, for we will reap a harvest, a blessing, if we do not give up. Suddenly, you go beyond the here and now, and you look down the road to the harvest. You look and you put your sight on eternity. It's not about the here and now. The runner who's running that marathon race isn't looking 10 meters in front of himself, 20 meters in front of himself. He's thinking finish line. If the finish line is five kilometers down the road, it's five kilometers down the road. That's where he's focused. And as Christians running the, the race for Jesus, our focus is on the, the precipice of eternity. Our focus is in, a, in, a, in another world. The question still remains, where do we get the kind of power to do the right thing when we're dead tired and we don't like, feel like doing the right thing? When every bone of our body is like, forget it, throw in the towel, it's, it's too hard. And I'll be perfectly honest, there are times where, you know, it's, who, who wants to stand up for truth? It's, you know, a person's rude to you and they're, they're mean to you and, and, you know, the flesh rises up. You think, you know what, I think I'm just for a moment, I'm going to be... I'm going to be rude back, you know. I'm going to pay back a little evil for evil, and we'll just even the, the score here. Where do we get the right energy, the, the, the energy to do the right thing? Second Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said this, It is God who gives us the ability to stand firm for Jesus. He has commissioned us and identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts. You want to take your pen and you want to circle the words stand firm and Holy Spirit because they're linked. They're linked. They go together. Um, the secret to not getting tired, the secret to not giving up, the secret of doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do is because the Spirit of God dwells and abides in our lives. Uh, day in and day out. That's where the power comes from. It's the Spirit of God energizing us. It's not our own power. I'm not talking about pulling up ourselves by the bootstraps and just grunting it out in life. Well, there's, there's a power that lives within us that we are able to please God. Occasionally, you'll hear people say, you know, it's, it's so hard to be a Christian. Our world is so messed up. Our world is so twisted. It's hard to be a Christian. And my response always is the same. It's not hard. It's, it's impossible, utterly impossible, because on our own, we can't do it. We need to tap into the spirit of God's power that, that lives within us. That's the only way we're going to be able to do it. The, the key to successful Christian living is not trying harder and harder and harder and harder. That's not it. It's about trusting more and more and more and relying more and more and more and being more dependent on the person who can make all the difference in our lives. God is the one who gives us strength day after day, week after week. We can't do it on our own. It's the Spirit of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For God is at work within you, giving you the will and the power to achieve his purpose. 
You see, sometimes we, we somehow get this impression that the Christian life is just sheer willpower. Well, yeah, there's, there's will and there's power there, but it's not our will and it's not our power. What does Paul say here? It's God's working, you know? He's the one who gives us the power to achieve his purpose. He's the one who gives us the desire to do what's that's right. According to Philippians 2.13, uh, it's all God, God's will, God's power. I thought just for the sake of illustration, it would be helpful to kind of somehow encapsulate and get a glimpse of the power of God. And so I, I thought, and I thought, what, what, what sort of gives us an impression of the power of God? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to get a picture of the sun. Because when I think of God's power, I think of, of just the sun in our own solar system. There is more power in one single second generated by the sun, created by God, than all the power that's ever been generated and ever been used in, in all of human history. In one second, that's how much power comes out of the sun. And what's even more mind-boggling, the sun has enough latent energy to burn for another 30 billion years. Okay? Get an idea of, of what kind of major power here. Well, the Bible says in Psalm 19 that when God created the heavens and, and the earth and all the, the suns and the stars and all the planets in the universe, it was finger play to God. It's like God had one hand tied behind his back and one eye closed, and he created the universe. That's the kind of power. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the kind of power that resides um, at our disposal, that's living in our lives. That's God's sustaining grace that we can experience each and every day. Third common experience in life where we can count on God's sustaining grace to keep us going, when we're troubled when we're troubled. John chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus is talking to his followers. He's nearing his death. He looks at them and says, in this world, you will have trouble. What's he saying? He's basically telling them, don't be surprised if you encounter a few difficulties down the road. In fact, you know, first Peter, Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that you're, you're going through. Uh, because it's not a surprise, it's expected, you know? You should expect life to be filled with all kinds of hardships, all kinds of heartaches, all kinds of pitfalls, all kinds of obstacles. Those sorts of troubles are part of everyday uh, life. There's no such thing as a, a problem-free life. You don't become a Christian and, and you know, everything's just hunky-dory. You know, you can just, you know, it's smooth skating all the way to the kingdom. Of all the problems we face in life, probably the most difficult for us to deal with are those problems that seem unfair. I think about what problems do we go through in life, uh, which ones are the most difficult for us to wrestle with. It's the, it's the times where we, we, we sit back and we think, this is just not fair. I know that's an experience in my family. It's one of the, the expressions my kids would constantly say growing up. This isn't fair. This isn't, and I'm like, get used to it. Life isn't fair. That's a really caring, compassionate response. Um, but I, I try to ingrain with them, hey, you know, it isn't. Life isn't fair. And, and when we, we do nothing to cause the problems that we experience, um, you know, these problems, they just show up on our doorstep one day, we open the door, and there they are. You know, those are difficult problems to face. You know, we didn't want them. We didn't ask for them. They're just there. It's unfair. You know, hard to handle. But finishing a close second 
are those problems that are unrelenting. You know, it's one thing to know that you're going to go through some tough times. Three months, you'll be out the other end. Okay, I'm going to hold on to the side of the boat. I'll ride this one out. But there are not, uh, there are not uh, closure. There's not closure to some problems. Some problems are unrelenting. There's no end in sight. Um, it's a whole lot easier to, to cope with something if you know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but sometimes we're dealing with problems and there's no light. These problems are going to be with us for the rest of our earthly lives. Sometimes it's a debilitating disease. Sometimes it's a handicap. Sometimes it's, it's a death of a loved one. Nothing's going to change that. Those types of problems um, are very difficult as well to deal with. So what are we to do when we find ourselves... Um, afflicted, distressed, in pain, uh, for no other reason than, hey, we were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and, you know, stuff happens. What are we to do when we can't fix, can't solve, can't change? It's just there, and we're going to have to cope with it from now until we enter eternity. There's only one thing we can do. We need to throw our lives on the grace of God. We need to throw ourselves on the sustaining grace that God pours out anew every single day. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, God says this, Do not worry, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, because I am your God. Surely I will strengthen you and help you. Surely I will support you with my right hand that saves you. Take a moment and underline all the things that God promises to do in just that one verse. There are five of them. You know, God promises to be with you, to strengthen you, to help you, to support you, and to save you. Wow, that pretty much covers everything. It'd be a great verse for you to commit to memory. You know, go home and, and write it out on a yellow sticky note and put it on your bathroom mirror, um, or put it uh, on your dashboard of your car. Commit it to memory. But let me give you one other verse to memorize with it. Psalm 46, verse one. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble, sustaining grace. So as I close, let me ask you this. Where do you need God's sustaining grace most today, now? Perhaps you've been just inundated with temptation. Maybe at school, maybe at work, maybe with your peers, your coworkers, and you feel like giving in. You feel like, you know, not fighting it anymore. Maybe that's where you need to experience God's sustaining grace. Perhaps you're just worn out. You're discouraged. You've struggled. You've struggled. You want to do what's right, but it just doesn't seem to pan out. There's no um, relief in sight, and you're just tired. You want to drop out of the race. Maybe you feel that with recent problems in life um, and the troubles that you're going through, God's forgotten you. Uh, these troubles have have come out of nowhere, they've knocked you down, and you don't want to get up. What's worse, there's no fix on the horizon. Whatever you're going through, don't give up. You look up. That's all we can do. We look up in humility, because God has promised to give us a grace that will sustain us from beginning to end. He saved us with grace, and he's going to bring us across that finish line, all on account of his unmerited favor, all on account of his, his loving kindness that is anew every single day. So my encouragement to you is just keep running. 
Run that race with endurance, and one day you'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for the new life we have in him, for the assurance of our salvation. Thank you that each and every day we experience anew your faithfulness and your sustaining grace to keep on keeping on. So I pray, Father, that there be any here discouraged today, that they would sense your presence, that they would begin looking to you for their source of strength and encouragement. And I pray, Father, that all of us would be faithful in what we've started to do, and that is to run the race for your glory. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.